The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. This episode is brought to you by Major Spoilers VIP members. VIP stands for very important people, and their small monthly contributions ensure that this podcast remains free for all of you. If you would like to become a bronze, silver, or gold VIP member, go to members.majorspoilers.com for more information. I sure do thank you for your support. Now, here's your show. The Major Spoilers podcast covers news, reviews, and of course, spoilers, and goes into detail about the topics discussed. So, if you haven't read, listened, or watched the items they talk about, you might want to come back later. I'm Matthew. I'm Rodrigo. And I'm Stephen, and you're listening to the Major Spoilers Podcast, the podcast for pop culture and comic fans. In this issue, Scoob and the gang face the inevitable doom. Reviews that scour the length and breadth of the galaxy, time, space, and dimension, plus a look at the cartoon history in the form of Oswald the Lucky Rabbit. Nerdy talk about the major spoilers way and our kick-butt poll of the week. So if you're looking for the best in pop culture goodness, wrapped in insight, deep fried and awesome, look no further, faithful spoilerites, because the Major Spoilers podcast is on the air. Hey, everyone. Welcome to issue 662 of the Major Spoilers podcast. Thank you for downloading. Thank you for listening. Thank you for sharing this episode with a friend. And I'm serious about that. Share this episode with a friend. Say, hey, have you ever heard about Oswald the Lucky Rabbit? You know how Oswald the Lucky Rabbit uh, not only helped Disney uh, get his uh, foot in the door, but it also helped launch the careers of uh, uh, Woody Woodpecker and uh, what was the panda's name? Andy Panda. Andy Panda. Yeah, Yeah, you're going to find out more about that later. When we talk with an art historian about the history of Oswald the Lucky Rabbit and a new cartoon that was uncovered, um, we'll also have some reviews and other things. But first, let's look at the news. We've got three <laughs> three stories that we can talk about this week. We can talk about Scooby-Doo Apocalypse. Mm-hmm. We can talk about Elizabeth Banks joining the Power Rangers as Rita Repulsa. Oh. Or we can talk about Kevin Smith gets the Harley Quinn bat from the upcoming Suicide Squad movie and then gives it to Harley Quinn. Let's spin that Wheel of Destiny. And see Wait, where we land. Really just, hang on, let me pull the tarp off it. I know, right? I gotta blow off the dust. <laughs> <coughs> <coughs> All right, it's, <laughs> round and round it goes. Where it stops, nobody knows. One, two, three, three, two, one, one, two, three. There it stops right there. It's Scooby Doo Apocalypse. I think it's broken, dude. Um, well, maybe maybe uh, Hanna Barbera and uh, DC Comics is broken. I don't know. Da, 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 da. So there's a weird thing that came out this week. Um, mm-hmm. it appeared on Entertainment Weekly. Uh, Jim Lee. Um, there's a bunch of creators involved in this. But essentially yes. what Warner Brothers or what DC Co- Entertainment is doing is they're taking a bunch of the Hanna-Barbera characters, properties, and they're right. turning them into a, a, a series of new comic books, updated, modified, flipped around, and presenting them to us in the coming months. Um, synergy! Well, I don't know if it's synergy because, you know, DC now, Comics... the gem and the holograms... A book already came out. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> DC, DC Comics has has released Hanna-Barbera titles before. We have had uh, Scooby-Doo, 
and Scooby Doo, mm-hmm. where are you? Scooby Doo team ups. Uh, there was a uh, a Space Ghost series that they did oh, like eight years ago or something like that. I want to say like two thousand five, two thousand six. It was a six yeah, yeah. issue limited. Mm-hmm. Uh, origin. First. Yeah, and now we're getting it all back, and it's going to be done in a different way. Uh, mm-hmm. Dan DiDio said, "We didn't want to just repeat what people saw in the past. It's really important." For this to resonate with folks who have never seen or heard the characters. If this is the first they're seeing it, we want them to be enjoying the material. So from our standpoint, our goal is to make this exciting and accessible to all generations, whether they're fans of the material and the characters or not. So what do we know about the series? Well, so far, Johnny Quest and Space Ghost will take place in the future, and it's being called Future Quest. We'll also see it looks like the, uh, what is it, the Herculoids and... um, The Herculoids, the Impossibles, and... Birdman and the Galaxy Trio. Yes. So it looks like that's going to be in one giant thing. They've got a wacky race land. Yes, which, which looks which like is Mad Max. Well, and there's a reason why it looks like Mad Max. <laughs> and then they're doing reboots of the Flintstones and Scooby-Doo Apocalypse, which is apparently taking place in a post-apocalyptic world. This is the one that has everybody talking about it. It is the cover done by Jim Lee, and it's really updating the characters. We see Scooby-Doo wearing some kind of... Uh, um, cyber tech on his body. And apparently he can speak in emojis. Uh, we have Velma who looks super, super short. Like maybe she's a tween. Mm-hmm. You have, um, um, Shaggy who wants you to uh, try we'll get to Shaggy in just a minute. We got, yeah, we got, um, Daphne who, mm-hmm. you know, because of the blue, uh, purple and green looks exactly like Fairchild from Jim Lee's earlier work. Uh, it's also the yeah. fact that Jim Lee draws every woman's face yes. pretty much the same. Uh, you, we've got Fred sporting a tribal tat, and then we have Shaggy. <laughs> Poor Shaggy. He's got the uh, the waxy hipster mustache, mm-hmm. the uh, hipster beard. Outfit, he's the got tats. Jeans. He's got uh, plaid. And a Basically, lot of people are take- really irate about this. Well, they've taken everything about that Shaggy character that was an exaggerated 60s. caricature of hippies. Right, in the 60s. And created an exaggerated character of the hipster of the 2000s. Right, exactly. Exactly. Yes, it's it's weird, though, because that's not really what Shaggy's personality seems like. Right. You know, Visually, obviously, obviously, there's tons of different ways that a hipster can be. But it's like, I, I would say the number one thing, like, Shaggy has two traits. Maybe three. He's, Shaggy has three traits. Okay. He is a scaredy cat. Right. Mm-hmm. He is hungry and he is lazy. And yes. you can take those traits and apply them to a certain type of maybe segment of society as well, if you want. And it works together pretty well. Mm-hmm. So I'm surprised that we're not seeing uh, Shaggy as more of like a slacker type rather than somebody who spends time waxing his mustache. That doesn't seem right. Right. And Shaggy is always kind of the everyman character. You know, he believes in cowardice and sandwiches, as a wise man once said. And Shaggy throughout the incarnations of Scooby-Doo has always been, well, first of all, he's always been there, one of the only characters who has. But more importantly, he's always been kind of a, yeah, man, do your thing kind of guy. And the exaggerated hipster archetype of, oh, yeah, I knew about this before you doesn't necessarily seem to fit the the portrayal of the character for the last 50 odd years. Yeah. Well, they're really shaking it up. Uh, so here's yeah. what we know. Jim Lee, Howard Porter, that we all know, uh, Keith Geffen mm-hmm. will be working on Scooby-Doo Apocalypse. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, and um, Howard has been tweeting me. He's like, well, I'm really excited about the project. I'm like, I'm glad you are, Howard. That's great. Uh-huh. Um, uh, Mark Russell and Amanda Connor will take on the Flintstones. Mm-hmm. Uh, Evan Shaner, Jeff Parker, and Darwin Cook will tell the future quest story. And then Mark yeah. Sexton will be working on the Wacky Raceland issue. And he was just most recently involved with Mad Max Fury Road. Oh, so, so that is why it looks just like it legitimately. Okay. Max Fury Road. Nice. I didn't so, realize that. So what is everybody's reaction to this? Rodrigo, let's start with you. What is your reaction to this? Um, I don't want to use the word rebirth because that's not what this is. Boot but launch. what do you, and it's not really, I mean, it's um modernization. Let's call it a modernization of these characters and properties. My, my take on it is man, that new Archie series must be doing really well. Right. So here's the thing. A lot of and this is the weird thing, because I was having a conversation uh, this week with Scott Johnson and Brian Ibbett, where we were talking about um, uh, the upcoming uh, Riverdale TV show and that it's being driven by Roberto Acara Sacasa. I don't know how to say his name. Aguirre Sacasa. And he is the one that drove the Afterlife with Archie series, which was the post-apocalyptic zombie tales that really radically changed the way people look at Archie. Scooby-Doo Apocalypse seems to be trying to do the exact same thing. Right. And we loved, we loved, we loved Afterlife with Archie, but people seem a little weird about Scooby-Doo Apocalypse. Uh, This is, this is actually what's weirdly, what seems weirdly disingenuous about that statement. Okay. That it's like, it's really important for this to resonate with folks who have never ever heard of the characters. It's like, but you're changing them. You're changing very drastic things about these characters. For one, you know, does Johnny Quest thematically jive with the Herculoids? I don't think he does, mm-hmm. you know? With the superheroes, even. Yeah, no, exactly, exactly. There's like, it, it's like Johnny Quest, for example, um, is a lot less interesting in a world with space ghost in it, you know? It's like, I don't know. So you can get into that. I, it it really seems to me that that statement that was like, oh, yeah, we want to make this more accessible. I'm like, you are putting these characters in very specific situations or in very specific places that are very different from a lot of their original incarnations. I don't think you should do like a big like, oh, what is that kind of space ghost? That's fine. It's fine if you update it. It's fine if you give me something different. But what they're saying they're doing, that's not what it feels like they're doing. What does it feel like they're doing to you? It feels like they're saying Afterlife with Archie did really well. Let's try something like that. Also, let's try something like DC Comics, because what's the first thing they did? They grabbed all of the properties and smushed them together into one series. Very true. I will say that um, the first of this that I saw was Doc Shaner tweeting the cover shot. And when I saw that cover shot, which one, the Meteor Man, Ghost or the Meteor Man, Space Ghost and Coil Man surrounded by the Council of Evil. Right. I literally got goosebumps. I am super psyched to see that scene or something like it in comics. That said, it's because I know Meteor Man, Coil Man and Space Ghost in their cartoon incarnations because I'm a nerd for Universal crossovers. And then you say to me, here's these other things we're doing. I'm like, I don't, I don't know about the whole Johnny Quest crossing over with the future and the superheroes, unless it's something where he somehow finds a portal and ends up in this weird world and it's oh, yeah, related, that's, but that's not the related. the only way they can do it. 
Yeah, none I mean, of the rest of this leaps up and speaks to me. I yeah, Hanna Barbera space superhero crossover that makes a lot of sense. I'm all for yeah. that. And it's like seriously, like the Herculoids was the weirdest show. The weird, so weird, right? It's like that's great, that's fantastic. Mm-hmm. Bring me more of that. Give me a comic that's an updated version of them. That's fine, mm-hmm. because good luck trying to make them make sense. They don't. You know? <laughs> One's a rock ape, and well, two of them yeah. are schmoos. Exactly, yeah. which is which is perfect. Which and is how great. many people know what a schmoo is? But that's beside the point. <sighs> Uh, well, there's also the Flintstones with Amanda Palmer doing the art on that. It's a, I love Amanda Connor. Amanda Connor. Man, Amanda Connor, correct. Uh, uh, that's terrifying. You think? <laughs> yeah. Th- there's a point. Amanda Connor does not necessarily photorealistic, but realistic characters and facial expressions and bodies with a cartoon aspect. And you take that hyper stylized Flintstones thing where Fred is basically an inverted pyramid with big, thick legs. And you try and give it to me in a realistic context. I mean, I've seen that. I saw it when it was uh, John, John Goodman Camp, in the yeah, role. John Goodman, yeah. I saw it when it was the second one where they had one of the Baldwin brothers as Barney. And each time it's terrifying and it got played so far over the top because you're in that uncanny valley. Literally, the uncanny valley is where the Flintstones live. It's just down the road <laughs> from Bedrock. But that's terrifying. Look at Wilma. Look at Wilma's head. I mean, you've taken these super cartoony characters and, you know, God love her. She makes them look like they are actual humans born of humanity. They are actually bipedal humanoid forms that may or may not have existed at some point in our in our past. But if you saw one on the street, you'd scream and run the other way. It's terrifying. However, guess- the saber-toothed tiger looks adorable. I guess my big question is, and Rodrigo kind of alluded to it because of the Archie thing, mm-hmm. but why are they doing this now? And here's the reason I say this. Back in November, Scooby-Doo, Where Are You?, which apparently was the last issue of the series, was the lowest selling comic from DC Comics. Out of the top 300 comics, it was the bottom for DC. It sold just over 5,000 copies. The other title that came out in November, Scooby-Doo Team-Up, which a lot of people like a lot more, uh, only sold 8,000, just over 8,000 copies. So why, if it's the worst thing going for you, why are you potentially canceling other books that sell 35, 40,000 copies and start trying to promote and hype this stuff? Because they only know how to sell the new Number one reboot. Well, then, then you then you focus then you focus on new Batman or new Robin or new well, they Nightwing do. They or do whatever that too. it is. But yeah, this do. stuff, which never, I mean, when it comes to solicitation time and they send that stuff to us and we post it on the website, they don't even most of the time they don't even include covers for their Looney Tunes or Hanna Barbera stuff. It's like an afterthought for them, and it's like they don't care. And then all of a sudden, boom. Everybody, all their big names, uh, Howard Porter, Jim Lee, Keith Giffen, uh, Jeff Parker, Darwin Cook, Evan Shaner, all great people, Amanda Connor, uh, all these people, they're suddenly saying, hey, we're going to make make these books big and popular. When in reality, they may only be good for one or two months as far as sales go, but then we're going to see Scooby-Doo Apocalypse or the Flintstones fall all the way back down the charts to last place. You don't necessarily know that. There's nothing, like, here's the thing, like... Uh, Archie 
has was done and has been done for the past like 30 years like no one picked up an issue of archie unironically up until they started doing life with archie which Mm -hmm. basically said hey you know that big thing that archie never does he's gonna do it now he's just gonna do it and it's like oh now suddenly it's interesting again so this could work this could definitely work but that's exactly what they're doing what they're mm-hmm. doing is they just had these properties in the back burner, just throwing out comics every once in a while to keep them like literally so that they can probably keep their copyright. Well, on. and that is that's the thing that I was getting at is I think the only reason they're doing it is to keep IP uh, rights up. I think no, that is the this. that is the only reason they're doing it. No. This they're doing just like, OK, so, I, uh, you know, a thousand years ago this hippie young company came on the scene, Marvel comics. And they, there's, there was like a spider style man and everybody was crazy about it. And suddenly there were like ground level superheroes, like daredevil, like jumping around, kicking people and stuff. And what did we start seeing from DC? Basically they started putting stuff out that was more like that. You know, DC has stayed in business by keeping their IPs and then taking some of them or making some new ones and stuff and sticking with the trends. There's a reason why right now we're still seeing super dark and gritty superhero stuff from uh, Warner Brothers in the movies is because at some point that worked. And That's sometimes so. it is sometimes it is, in fact, DC or Warner Brothers themselves that sets that trend. You know, it's like we've pro- gotten progressively darker Batman since the, you know, in retrospect, since, uh, not that dark. War- yeah, since the Burton Batman. Mm-hmm. And it's like. When somebody finds something that works, everybody jumps on it. You know, well, when Project Superpowers was doing okay, a bunch of superheroes, a bunch of public domain superheroes, and a bunch of just old superheroes that people had still had the rights to suddenly surged up as well. You know, you mm-hmm. see this happen over and over again. And we live in a world where a character who was a one note joke up until 2008 was part of a billion-dollar franchise in 2012. In a world where Rocket Raccoon is a major draw, in a world where Star-Lord, who literally has a dozen appearances to his name from 1976 to 1996, is a major player because they reinvented him, because they took and said, well, everything you know about Star-Lord, nobody even remembers Star-Lord. We're going to do something entirely different. And if it sticks with the public, then it becomes super, super awesome. And that's what this feels like to me. It feels like, well, first of all, it feels like they're trying to get as much of the nostalgia factor as they can, because frankly, you don't put Coil Man on a cover, but for the 14 guys who remember who Coil Man is. And then you put it together and you tie it in with Space Ghost. Everybody knows your Space Ghost. The reason that everybody's really, really upset about the Scooby-Doo is not because Scooby-Doo is the biggest change in premise necessarily. It's because Scooby-Doo has the highest social presence, has the highest, I think, visibility. Well, of all the – of all going back to the, the comment about keeping an IP alive and keeping rights around – uh, Scooby-Doo is the one that is the least worrisome because they have, like, every couple of years either have a made-for-TV movie or a right. new cartoon uh, show yeah. that pops there's, up for a little bit. Been, yeah. But yeah, when, was was last time, when was the last time you had Space Ghost Coast to Coast on or had anything Johnny Quest-related or anything like that? In fact, um, with, the, uh, with the Venture Brothers, um, you, could, you could argue that that is 
moving in and infringing or not infringing on, but moving in and encroaching into the territory of Johnny Quest's IP. Uh, well, well, it's parody. I mean, there's yeah. nothing that I would that like if somebody asked right, but, me, but when the parody, but around... when the parody takes over the main property, then you have a problem right. with that. Well, yeah, definitely you can. If your parody, if the parody becomes more popular than the source material, then it's very difficult to take the source material seriously. We've seen right. that happen before. I mean, I, that actually, uh, you know, by its own company happened to Space Ghost. It's very difficult mm-hmm. for people of a certain generation to take Space Ghost seriously as a superhero because you saw him forever. And it was a hugely popular show on Adult Swim forever. And the, the success of the Venture Brothers has really kept the Johnny Quest IP out of the public eye for some years. I mean, you don't see it on Cartoon Network. You don't see it on Boomerang. Right. And I think part of that is because they still have a financial stake in new Venture Brothers mm-hmm. uh, premiering last week. Yep. Well, but, if, you don't, if you don't use your stuff, you're going to lose your stuff. And, well, most of these and I folks think that, are going to fall into the public domain in 20 years anyway. No, they won't. No, no, they won't. No, 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 no. Disney Never. will come down and exactly. change the law. They again. will change the law again, and that just don't get me started. I'm so pissed off about. Them. But you know uh, I will be, I will be buying whatever book has Space Ghost and Birdman and the Impossibles and the Galaxy Trio, and I will look into this new weird Ghostbusters future death Scooby Doo, because frankly, we and the comics public in general had similar loud concerns about Afterlife with mm-hmm. Archie before mm-hmm. it came out. Yep. And Afterlife with Archie was so well done and so well thought out and so engrossing a story that it actually overcame the fact that it was initially, and this is not uh, me being snotty, it started as a joke. It was right. Somebody, it started. Hey, it started cool, as funny. Here's a here's a jughead as a zombie. Ha-ha. Well, that was that was hey, uh, Francesco Francavia doing that as a joke. Yes, and and it turned a, into a thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I think that and Archie has been making a comeback since about 2006 mm-hmm. with uh, the introduction of Kevin Keller and other um, mm-hmm. other cast of characters that they've introduced, which has reinvigorated the property. Um, and with the change of ownership or with the change of people who are in charge at Archie stewardship. Perhaps. Yeah. The people who say, yeah, let's go ahead and try this afterlife with Archie. I mean, the uh, life with Archie did. Okay. Let's do this. Um, I think that that's the reason why those things got made. Let's just real quick, jump to the major spoilers poll of the week this week. Poll of the week. Poll Be- of the week. <laughs> because it's all about Scooby-Doo apocalypse. Poly, I wanted poly, to poly, know, poly, 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 I wanted to know what everyone else thinks about the Scooby-Doo apocalypse. Uh, what is your first reaction to the new Hanna-Barbera books? The options were, I love the idea. I hate the idea. I'm going to wait until these books are released and then pass judgment. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm going to say, I really love the idea here. I love that you can shake it up, especially, and again, with Scooby-Doo being the lowest selling property, they don't even do their Looney Tunes books anymore at DC. There's not been a Bugs Bunny or Daffy Duck comic book for two years, maybe, I want to say, something like that. Um, so if this is the low selling book and they want to put Scooby-Doo into the apocalypse where they're fighting off monsters and, and zombies and it's not people in rubber masks, that sounds great. The Johnny Quest stuff, I'm all for. The Space Ghost stuff, I'm all for. Wacky Racelands and the Flintstones are probably lower on my list, but I love the idea that they're going to try something different to reinvigorate these properties. So I love the idea, even though it may not pay off down the road, I still love the idea and I'm, I'm glad that they're willing to shake things up. 
Matthew, what did you think of uh, of this uh, first reaction of the HB books? At major spoilers, we you put up the post with seven promo images. Yeah, I think it was something like that. Went, yeah, and they ranked for me uh, from super goosebumps to eh. so I had to go with. I'm going to reserve judgment because, frankly, they've they've given us just the teaser. They've given us the the creators involved, and there are creators that I trust here: Keith Giffen, I trust; Howard Porter, I trust; Doc Shaner, I trust. Oh yeah, Jim Lee is Darwin also Cook. part of this Jim project. Lee. Yeah, I mean they've got <laughs> but, they've got the names behind it. And the thing about it is, dumber things have worked. You know, the idea of Jughead getting bitten by hot dog and turning into a zombie is that line. It is such a fine line between high concept and dumb joke. And Jughead parked across it and made it work. So Scooby Apocalypse may be the thing that brings the Scooby-Doo franchise back after this last god-awful Family Guy version of it that's been airing on Cartoon Network, which may have already been canceled. Hope so. Maybe. But I, I, I'm definitely going to wait. I will tell you right now that if the orders were going in today, I would order Future Quest. I would put my money down and I will read Future Quest top to bottom. If only for that moment where they'll have a panel where Multiman shows up and says Rally Ho and nine-year-old me will cheer and cheer and 45-year-old me will write a review and go, maybe that moment wasn't everything that it should have been. And then nine-year-old me will call 45-year-old me a rotten sellout and Shaggy will wax his beard. Rodrigo, what about you? Well, I will... Uh, I'll wait until they're released. And, and that's usually my take on most things because... Uh, Matthew's right. Stupider things have worked. You know, we live in strange times. There was a time when if somebody wanted to write a book where um, everyone in Riverdale gets turned into zombies, they would do it and change all the names. And then people in the know would read it and it's like, oh, that's supposed to be Moose. Oh, that's supposed to be, you know, Archie or whatever. Mm -hmm. But now we live in times where that's just something that the companies themselves are putting out. Um, you know, Marvel zombies, things like that. Um, mm -hmm. So, you know, that's not to say that it can't work or that it won't work or that it's done or anything. You know, it's like out of these, what, seven titles that are coming out? Mm -hmm. um, well, we don't know it's seven titles. We know oh, okay. that there are there seven, seven books. Images. Yeah, seven okay. images. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So out of these, however many number of titles that are coming out, um, some of them might work. Some of them certainly will not. Just statistically speaking, when you launch, you know, right. any number of comics, chances are one of them is not going to work. If for no other reason, then not everybody's going to buy all of them. Right. Um, it's it's interesting. It's an interesting idea, but you know, it's like. There's a universe out there where Lunatics Unleashed was a good idea and where somebody wrote up a show that actually worked where the Looney Tunes were weird Batman Beyond superheroes. Like, mm -hmm. that's exactly what we're talking about. In reality, that was a terrible show. Mm -hmm. But that doesn't mean that it couldn't have worked. Actually, in the same way that Batman Beyond did work. Yeah. It doesn't make it a bad idea because right. the execution fell flat. And exactly, mm -hmm. exactly. Yeah, I think there's only four books that that's what we know from the Entertainment uh, right. Weekly article. Scooby-Doo Apocalypse, Flintstones, 
uh, Future Quest, and then Wacky Raceland. Wacky Raceland. Wacky Raceland looks interesting, but I never really cared for the Wacky Races. I, oh, I yeah, like. I, I'm actually, actually, weirdly, that's the one that I'm the most curious about because mm-hmm. it looks, it looks colorful but gritty, and I'm like. So are there just going to be a bunch of like guys who have a ghost motif or are they actually going to be ghost? Is there going to be like a gangster type road gang or are they going to be actual like Chicago 1940s or whatever gangsters that got teleported here? And I think that in some ways they have the blankest canvas to work with because even of all of these books, Wacky Races is 24 issues in 1969 or 24 episodes. So I mean, even the impossibles or your, you know, your Herculoids, I think, has a higher presence than the wacky races in the general consciousness. So, yeah, some of the other uh, people have voted this week have said uh, Matt says waiting to pass judgment after life with Archie took a property and made it outstanding. Uh, Perhaps DC can do it again. Uh, Sidness says, I don't see this being interesting. Archie was lightning in a bottle and only worked because while it stepped in, while it was steeped in nostalgia, it was an outdated concept and needed a reimagining. The old Hanna-Barbera cartoons and properties were in their way timeless and therefore wouldn't take, uh, wouldn't take to a revamp in the same way. For an example, see just about every Scooby-Doo cartoon relaunch that's been out there. Um, here's another one says, I'm waiting as I said in another post, I do think that there's potential for this to be a, a good if handled well. I'm not getting myself excited for it, but I'm not putting it off before it's arrived either. Uh, Eric says, I'm always on the lookout for new comics that I can read with my young kids. The current Scooby-Doo team-up comics are some of the best out there. Um, waiting because it uh, could be a really good read, says another person. Uh, let's see. Oh, uh, somebody else says, I noticed that there is a lack of mostly indifferent or meh option. We don't use meh at Majorspoilers.com. We don't don't ever use meh. And uh, I'm not terribly confident that it will be good, says Galupa. Uh, But I've been surprised before, so I'll wait and see. How does everybody else vote so far in the the Major Spoilers poll of the week? As I expected, a whopping 70% of respondents saying that they're going to wait until they're released to pass judgment, which... Does seem to be, I think, the most measured response to it. Uh, 18% saying they love the idea, only 11%. So basically, one out of 10 saying that they absolutely hate it. And that's another thing. You have every right to have knee jerk hate of something. Had this been something that I was, you know, very, very mad about, you know, if they had brought back, I don't know, my favorite uh, Hanna Barbera property. Yeah, if they brought uh, HR Puffin stuff back and said in a post apocalyptic world, Matthew would have just lost his stuff. Not a Hanna Barbera. No, I'm just using this property. as another example. Also, you know, are we sure that HR Puffin stuff wasn't post apocalyptic? I don't know. Yeah, I, I think, think that actually... was a uh, post uh, post mushroom. Post hallucinogenic? Yes. Uh-huh. If, <laughs> if this was grim and gritty banana splits. Mm-hmm. You know, my honestly, I'll nah, tell you what my nah, biggest. Nah, 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 banana, banana, nah, nah, three bananas, nah, nah, four bananas make a bunch, and so do many If this, my my big disappointment in this is not what they've done, it's that they didn't do enough. Where's my blue falcon? Uh, I, some people have much. some people have asked about that, and while it hasn't while it hasn't been official from DC, they did say I did see someone say 
that Blue Falcon will indeed be part of that Ghost uh, uh, Johnny Quest Future Quest story. Future Quest, yeah, okay. Because yeah. you, you know you need the Batman. You guys want to hear my uh, my pitch for an updated Hanna Barbera thing? Sure. Yeah. All right. So here's what I would do. I would do Top Cat, but instead of making it like a guys and dolls, like oh, we're just like uh, rolling dice and stuff. It's like Top Cat is a cat. And he lives with a bunch of cats. They're all poor. You know, they're all just trying to get by, and they have a very tense relationship with the police. Ooh. Right? You want to talk about right. relevant? Yeah. Right. Exactly. Wow. Like that's what that's why in in this reality where Hanna Barbera goes or, or DC comes like, oh, Rodrigo, you write the top cat one. I'd be like, okay, then I turn in this pitch and they're like, Nope. Nope. Write something yep. else. Yep. You fired. <laughs> well, look at it this way. If if things go well if this goes well, we could see relaunches of Yogi Bear. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we could we see we could see El Cabong uh come back. Yes. Yeah, quick draw McGraw, yeah. yeah. You do quick draw McGraw as a gritty Clint Eastward Western, and you do not oh, address actually, the fact that everyone is like an, an anthropomorphic burrow. If you did El Cabong, you could do it almost like um, uh, what was the Samurai Jack. You could almost do it like that. Oh, that would be interesting. Yeah. Well, El Cabong is your Zorro archetype, and you can do yeah. a lot with the Zorro archetype. I mean, DC built their fortune on a Zorro archetype. So yep. I don't know. Well, I'm I think st- the, I think the big, w- you're in that future quest, baby. Yep. Oh, best, believe me. Just doc Shaner has been drawing Johnny quest for mm-hmm. ever since I've known of him on Twitter and stuff. I mean, if you go back into the archives, you'll find early art appreciation moments of the day where it's just like <laughs> this week, we're just looking at doc Shaner stuff. His stuff is so awesome. Here's Johnny quest. Here's his take on Popeye. He used to, he did a thing where I think it was every day for a year he drew a classic character in his style, and it was freaking awesome. Um, so I will definitely be checking that out. I don't know if he – I don't think he did it, but he posted it on his Tumblr. The shot of Space Ghost and uh, Haji and Johnny, and then they cut in a shot from Space Ghost coast to coast with Space Ghost going, you boys aren't nerds, are you? <laughs> <laughs> it's so awesome. It's like the funniest thing ever for me. Well, listeners, the answer is yes. Yes, they are. Listeners, we want you to head over to Majorspoilers.com. Cast your vote in the Major Spoilers poll of the week. Let us know if you are, if you're loving the idea of, of uh, updating these characters, if you hate it, or if you're just going to wait and see. It's all over there at Majorspoilers.com and a bunch of news stories as well. Go check them out. And while you're over there, click on that Amazon link. When you click on that Amazon link at Majorspoilers.com, uh, it takes you to Amazon. And then you can just purchase whatever that you might want to purchase. Maybe you want to purchase Rodrigo's book, The Tale of the Tallest Rabbit. You can yeah. still get it. It's still available. Uh, you could buy a brand new TV for the upcoming Super Bowl. and uh, Or maybe you need to buy some uh, some dip bowls as well uh, for your, your Super Bowl party. It's not going to cost you anything extra. Keys coming out. You there you go. Uh, it's not going to cost you anything extra. A little bit comes back our way and allows us to do this show week after week after week. After week. After week, let us do some reviews. Reviews. Uh, so this week I'm uh, coming out from Dynamite Entertainment is Deja Thora's number one from Dynamite Entertainment, written by Frank uh, Barbieri with Francesco Mana doing the uh, the art. This is a different story. They've uh, this is a Deja Thora story where her father, the Jed, the king, mysteriously vanishes, and there's a guy with a Van Dyke and a handlebar mustache and a bald head who claims that she has been adopted, and so therefore she is not the rightful ruler of Barsoom, also known as Mars to us Earthlings. 
And so they throw her in jail from which she escapes. And now she has to go on a quest to prove that she is indeed royal heritage. Uh, And so that's the kind of setup. It's pretty, you know who the bad guy is right away. You know that this is a power play to take control of, of the crown. Um, John Carter is quickly um, captured as well because he's in league with uh, with Dejah Thoris, so therefore he is not worthy to be the the warrior of Mars. And so it's interesting from that part. The art is really fantastic, although I will say that the people of Mars wear a lot more clothing than they have in the past in Dynamite Entertainment Comics. Um, oh, it's getting colder in Mars. It, maybe it is. Maybe it's wintertime, so they have to, to wear a few more gold, Mar- uh, gold bikini parts. Um, but I really like the art in this. It is really stunning, and it doesn't it doesn't suffer from the contrast issue that I normally complain about with Dynamite uh, books. the The coloring is super well done. Um, it looks really good. I'm a little bit concerned that things look too more too fantasy realm setting, meaning that you know heart, horse and cart kind of things. Um, at one point, Deja is uh, in her jail cell. There's a rat that's running around, and it looks like a rat and does not look like. A Mars creature does not look like a space rat, doesn't have antennas on it. Uh, So by the end of it, when she's riding away in a covered wagon, it looks very much like a fantasy world setting, something you would see out of Conan or Red Sonja. And that's the part that worries me the most from the visual look of this story. Everything else, though, the story is set up nicely. I want to see. I mean, this is not based on anything uh, that Edgar Rice Burroughs had written. So I'm very interested to see. Uh, how the story progresses and what the eventual outcome is and how it, or if it changes the status quo of John Carter and the uh, citizens of Mars. So I'm giving this three and a half slices of meatloaf out of five. I thought it was interesting. I thought the art was wonderful. And if you're someone who's into John Carter of Mars, this is a book that's worth picking up this week from dynamite entertainment. So there you go. Uh, Matthew, what do you have for us this week? I have a comic from last week from image comics, I believe. Monstress number three. And I don't remember if I actually reviewed it for the site or if I just intended to review it and then read it and went, oh, my God. But uh, I have been a huge Monstress booster since Monstress came out a couple of months ago. And this issue has done absolutely nothing to dispel that. Um, The thing about Monstress that's really hard to describe is... A lot of times when we get into what, what I describe as kind of a fairy tale or high fantasy story, it's all that D&D, quasi-European swords and sorcery stuff. Mm-hmm. It all comes from a, a specific viewpoint, one that could be described as a European, uh, very Caucasian viewpoint. And Monstress is based a little bit more on tales of Asian culture. Marjorie Liu is the writer. Sana Takeda is the artist. I believe the artist is Japanese. I do not know about Marjorie, but this is a very fairy tale story in a visceral and frightening sense. It actually opens with uh, our, our main character, who is not named Monstress, and I can't call her Monstress, realizing that there's a demon inside her. And we're not talking like metaphysical or metaphorical. We're talking like, eat your face. And from the very first page... This issue is gorgeous. It is simply beautiful. And the thing about a really engrossing story, when I say a fairy tale story, I mean that I can't look away and I can't stop reading. And 
when I'm done, a lot of times I can't explain to you, I can't fully articulate how wonderful the experience is and how much I enjoy it. So if I feel even more inarticulate than usual, it's because this book just kind of drags you right in. It drew me in on the events of this issue. There's some brutality. There's some little magic, magic, magic. There is a baby put in danger and it did not make me angry. That is very important. When a trope that is known for pushing the big red button and sending Matthew into a rage not only works, but works perfectly, works well, and most importantly, makes the story work well, then you know you're dealing with something really, really wonderful. Now, I will, I'll be honest with you. There are points in this story where I didn't quite understand what was going on. But it's the good kind of didn't quite understand. It's the go back and reread and go back to the first two issues and pour over them voraciously trying to figure out, is this a reference we've seen before? Is this something new? That's the level of engrossing that you have here. So I'm going to tell you right off the top, go buy Monstrous. Five slices of meatloaf. I would give it more if we had them. It is visually stunning. The story drags you in. And when you get to the material in the back, after the main story, there's actually a one-page tale, an excerpt of a lecture from the esteemed Professor Tam Tam, who, by the way, is a cat with four tails, teaching kittens uh, a, a legendary folk tale. And these are the most adorable little kittens ever, but they are trying to learn to be Magical kittens? I don't know. I don't care. It is Makes wonderful. Sense. Yeah. That page alone is worth. Now, I paid two ninety nine because I get the digital version. I believe that if you buy a physical copy, it is three fifty. But either way, it's worth three fifty. It's worth three ninety nine. This is a wonderful book. Buy it. Go buy issues one, two, and three. Mm-hmm. Read them. Do not wait for the trades. Rush right out in a buying frenzy. Get you some monstrous on. It looks like, and I, and this is just from what I'm seeing on the Image website, mm-hmm. uh, the current issue, Monstrous number three, is three dollars and fifty cents. Mm-hmm. Issue two is three ninety nine. Issue one is four ninety nine. And I don't know Ooh. if uh, the first issue was double sized or anything like that. It was the first issue, issue was yeah. massive. Yeah, oh yeah, it was triple sized. It's a okay. triple sized. Yeah, first yeah issue, triple sized. Yeah. So um, yeah, it looks like three fifty is about where it, it's settling down at. But uh, yeah, you can get That's... it for two ninety nine digital. That's your general image price point. That's, I mean, that's where your sex criminals and your sagas sit. I think two ninety nine to three fifty. Yep. So yeah. Yep. Good, good book. Pretty book. Wonderful book. Read book. Cobra say love book. Cool. All right. Thank you, Matthew and Rodrigo. What do you have for us this week? I have Kennel Block Blues number one. Da 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 da. I think yeah, that's out much. this week. This is out this week from Boom Studios. Yeah, so. uh, it's uh, Ryan Ferrier and uh, Daniel Bayliss are the creative team. Um, yes. Um, I want to do that after every sentence. You know that. No, right? no, no, no. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so this is a story about a dog that gets sent to the pound but it's an anthropomorphic dog and the pound is like a general population prison kind of thing um 
So let first I'll get out of the way that it's good. It's pretty interesting. The art is good. The concept is really interesting. The main character is in complete denial about his situation. And every once in a while, you cut to his own brain. In fact, the very first page is him, is you seeing things through his completely diluted eyes. And everything looks like, um, you know, that scene in Roger Rabbit where they drive through the wall and they get into Toontown. Mm -hmm. Like, that's (laughs) what it looks like. Actually, there's some like real Oswald the Lucky Rabbit kind of feel to a lot of the animals. Um, And then they keep cutting back and forth to what's actually happening. And it is like gritty. It is just completely like this guy's in jail. He's He's in a high security prison or, you know, just like in a big prison complex. You know, there are gangs. There are all these problems like and he kind of immediately uh runs afoul of like the main gang um and as soon as things go down it's like the cartoon action kicks in again so it's like everything turns into like steamboat like uh technicolor steamboat willy while there's like a big fight scene it's super weird but it's cool there's a lot of cool stuff going on here at the end, there's maybe some supernatural stuff that happens, or maybe it's that his worldview was shattered and he doesn't see something, or something supernatural doesn't happen. It's just that now he is thinking that maybe he's in a horror movie instead. It's hard to tell. It's hard to tell because the uh, protagonist's uh, point of view is compromised, right? Um, so that's that's all interesting and it's uh, yeah it's enjoyable but the the issue with this as with anything that has anthropomorphic animals and especially with this book is what's this world like what are the rules and it's really hard to tell from this it's like uh the main character is a good dog and he has a family and it's pretty clear that it's like a human family because he watched cartoons with his family is like something that like his owner basically um used to watch right and all the dogs kind of behave like dogs except that they stand on two legs or whatever so it's like are there humans in this world and if so do they own anthropomorphic animal pets like or if not is this like two stages of delusion like Delusion number one, we are seeing this as humans, and this is actually just a normal pound. Or, and then delusion number two being all of the stuff that this uh, particular dog is picturing. Or, what is happening? We almost see the guards to the pound, but they stop us there. So I'm guessing this will hopefully be explained in the second issue, like where humans, non-dog humans stand in all of this. Uh, it's pretty weird. Uh, but that said, I liked it. So, th- uh, three slices of meatloaf. You know, if nothing, like, I'm interested to see where they take this. I'm interested to see what the rules are. Um, a little annoyed that they didn't put them up front. But I also think that, especially where anthropomorphic animals are concerned, I tend to overthink this. I mean, I, like, flip through Black Sad a thousand times, not just because it's. The art is fantastic, which it is. You guys should read Black Sad. Mm-hmm. Um, not you guys. I know you guys have read it. I'm talking about I've spoilers. read it time and time again. Yes. 17. Um, yes. Um, 
but also because you know there's like that scene where like there's this bird he's talking to this bird and he's like oh isn't it ironic a bird who can't fly and it's like how is that ironic you're an anthropomorphic bird you don't have any wings in any case like i said overthinking it review over all right. Thank you, uh, Rodrigo and Matthew. And if you're wondering where uh, Ashley Victoria Robinson is this week, she had to go to a screening for something. Uh-huh. She, she's a secret thing. So uh, she is out this week. But you can head over to Majorspoilers.com. You can find more reviews and you can even find her breakdown of the late, latest Agent Carter series, as well as her Girl on Supergirl episode, her review of the Bizarro episode, which I have not had a chance to uh, watch yet. Bizarro. It's good. It is over at Majorspoilers.com. The problem is normally I get a catch up on the shows from the night before mm-hmm. during my lunchtime. You know, I'll sit down and eat something while I watch the show and then take notes and everything. Snow day today. So the kids were at home. So it <laughs> didn't, yeah, didn't, didn't work that, that way. Everything. And I'm concerned because I'm supposed to watch the flash and write an article about the flash and the kids are out of school again tomorrow. So it's going to be an interesting day to see. Hey, family, sit down and watch The Flash. Yeah, it's going to be family, sit down and shut up (laughs) so I can take notes. Actually, I found a really cool way of taking notes. Somebody was asking me about uh, the iPad Pro that I'd purchased, and and the um, the, uh, keyboard cover finally came with it. And I used to literally sit down with a notepad and paper, but now I'm just typing my notes right onto the iPad, and because it's part of the cloud... Uh, all of my notes go right over to my main computer so that when I'm done watching the show, I can just come sit down, fill in the blanks on the article, and it's basically done. So it's actually a huge time saver that way. But uh, we'll see what happens tomorrow. Uh, probably the next time I mention the iPad, I will talk about the iPad Pencil uh, or the iPencil or whatever it's called from Apple because it also has some uh, cool things going for it as well. So um, let's see. Oh, if you're looking for some cool headphones, I got you guys didn't hear this. Probably not. Maybe Rodrigo did. But last week on Finally Friday, Ashley and I were talking about Scooby-Doo Apocalypse. And, of course, Finally Friday is a live call-in show where you get to call in and share your thoughts about anything that was going on during the week. We got a phone call that was clearer than anything I've ever that's ever come down on the Internet. And I was like, dude, are you calling from your own setup? Are you calling on Skype? This is a perfect-sounding call. And the caller said, nope, I'm calling from my car on my cell phone and I'm using my tweaked audio earbuds. (laughs) Oh, go back and listen to it. It sounds awesome. It is crystal clear. And that just shows you how great these earbuds are from uh, tweakedaudio.com. all sorts of styles and colors. And the one that the person was using was indeed the one with the built-in microphone. So he could drive hands free and still have a conversation with us on finally Friday. Here's the deal, everybody. I want you to head over to tweakedaudio.com, T-W-E-A-K-E-D audio.com. And when you enter the checkout code MAJOR, M-A-J-O-R, you're going to get 33% off your price. You're going to put these things in your ears and you're going to fall in love. And then the next time you call Finally Friday, you will have a perfect <laughs> crystal clear sound as well. So thank you, Tweaked Audio, for sponsoring this episode of the Major Spoilers podcast and making Finally Friday sound even more awesome. Yay. Now, uh, so, uh, Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs is out on Blu-ray. And one of the cool things that it has is a new restored found, uh, animated short of Oswald, the lucky rabbit. This week I had a, had a chance to talk with uh, David Gerstein, who is a, a historian, uh, animation historian. We talk about Oswald, the lucky rabbit, the little history and why it's important that these films have been found and what it means going forward. And yes, there is a comic book tie. So stick around for this interview. And we'll be back on the other side. 
it's always fascinating to me whenever we find lost pieces of pop culture. In the case of Oswald the Lucky Rabbit, one of the classic animated cartoons, in 2011, a lost short was found. Disney was able to obtain it, restore it, and it's now available on the uh, Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs uh, collection that has just come out in the last couple of weeks. And I thought it'd be interesting to talk about the history of Oswald the Lucky Rabbit with animation historian David Gerstein. David, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks so much. How exciting is it to find something like the uh, the Oswald uh, Oswald the Lucky Rabbit short and have it restored and now available to everybody? It's very exciting because the um, the Oswald cartoons were produced during a period when Walt and Ub Iwerks had an amazing team at their disposal, not just their personal skills, but many who weren't with them later, such as Hugh Harmon and Ruby Ising, Fritz Freeling. Um, but you might say that the kernel of many of the 1930s animation studios was the Disney studio as it existed in 1927 and 1928. And it's great to see all of those talents together working at pushing the boundaries forward. You know, it's interesting because before Oswald the Lucky Rabbit came on, Disney and um, of were working with the Alice comedies, which were real popular live, kind of a mix between live action and animation combined together. Why did they move from the Alice comedies over to Oswald? Well, as dynamic and exciting as the live action and animation mix seemed initially, over a couple of years, the series kind of seemed to lose a little bit of steam. They, um, the, the staff overwhelmingly wanted to produce cartoons that were more cartoon-centric. If you look at the later cartoons in the Alice comedies series, you'll notice that Alice, the live character, generally has less and less to do actively and um, personality-wise in the plot. The stories generally hinge more and more around her cat buddy Julius and the adventures that he gets up to. In the earlier episodes, he was usually alongside Alice, and in the later cartoons, He's there more and more as almost a solo character. Alice is kind of his support. And so you get the feeling that the staff wanted to be freed from the strictures of live action. They wanted to do something new and different. And the Alice comedies were still popular, of course, though. So that that enabled distributor Charles Mintz to interest Universal Studios in an all-animated series. And so essentially the Disney studio got a break. Alice was successful, but they everybody believed the chance to do something all animated would be a step ahead. Oh, sure. But it, maybe I'm mistaken, but I thought this was one of the early times that we had seen live action and animation together. And so that was what was completely different. Oh, it was definitely an, um, an, an exciting innovation. But admittedly, there were several studios who produced various forms of live action oh. and animation combinations in the 20s. Okay. There's the very famous Out of the Inkwell series. Oh, right, right, right. The Hand of the Artist and Coco the Clown. Then you had um, the famous Bray Studio, which produced its Colonel He's a Liar and Dinky Doodle series, where um, in each case the Colonel or Dinky and his dog Weakheart would be interacting with artists at a studio, often going off on adventures of their own in an animated landscape, but just as commonly horsing around in the studio with a live-action and animation combination. So while Disney offered its own unique twist in that the live character was surrounded by cartoons instead of the other way around, um, Disney wasn't the only person to be selling a combination of the two mediums. I see. So as exciting as it seemed, um, 
breaking away to an all-animated series, I don't think anybody regarded it as a step down. Okay. Well, but in regards to Oswald as a rabbit, why a rabbit? Why not something? Why why not another animal? Do we have any reasons for for a rabbit over another anthropomorphic anthropomorphic animal? That's an interesting question, one that I haven't really thought about very much. Um, it may simply have been a kind of novelty. Some of the trade papers at the time said, said that it was funny that cartoonists had never thought of starring a rabbit before. <laughs> Some people mentioned that there were great gags to be gotten from his long ears. Mm-hmm. Um, others drew a, drew a comparison with Br'er Rabbit, a popular folk character who had not been adapted to animation at that time. Interesting. Basically, a rabbit seen as a kind of playful trickster character. There was just sort of, I think, once again, Br'er Rabbit was mentioned in several of the early newspaper write-ups of Oswald as an inspiration. Not that Disney had actually said that there was that inspiration. It's simply what people naturally thought of. Right. So between basically 1927 to 1928, how many of these shorts did uh, Disney produce for Universal Pictures? Disney um, officially Disney was contracted to produce 26 of them, and Disney did so. Now they may have had some other story ideas that began during their time, that um, some of the staffers who later left continued on without Walt. For example, the very first post Disney Oswald cartoon still carries Walt's name in the credits, um, oh, along with others, and to suggest that some story elements may have hung around. I see. What was Sure. So what was what was the reason for splitting away from Oswald and pursuing Mickey Mouse as a as a as a character? Well, it's one of the famous stories in animation history. Mm-hmm. Essentially, Walt Disney and Ella Iwerks and Roy and their team signed an agreement with Universal that basically gave Universal and distributor Charles Mintz, the middleman, a kind of control over what the Disney studio could do, what they had to do. Essentially, they had to deliver films that made it that made it to a certain length for a certain budget. And at some point, the decision was taken on Universal's behalf that, well, these cartoons are getting more and more expensive. Walt and Ub and their team are innovating, you know. And, and it's, well, we don't know exactly what Universal and Mintz said behind closed doors. One gets the impression that they felt that the innovation was too much, that the audience would never notice if the cartoons were less innovative. Mm. So when Walt Disney went to Mintz to negotiate the second season in early 1928, he said, essentially, everything's going fine, Charles. Um, why don't we just continue? And Mintz says, no, you're going to produce the cartoons for a significantly lower budget next season. And Walt says, well, what if I don't want to? And Mintz replied, well... Um, your cartoonists would be desperate if you lost the Oswald contract. So I've spoken to many of them independently, and um, they've agreed to come work for me if you lose the contract. And Walt says, well, I'll take Oswald with me. I won't lose the contract. And Mintz says, well, no, look again at your contract. It gives so much controlling interest to me at the Universal that that Oswald is essentially mine. I can produce Oswald at my own studio if you don't want to produce them to meet my demands, you can just turn around and leave, but then, well, many of your animators and assistants will will leave with Oswald. And that is essentially what happened. 
Walt and Ub made the difficult decision that continuing to innovate and continuing to advance was more important than sticking with Oswald as much as they might like him well, with a reduced budget, less control. Oh, sure. But, I mean, that, that though, sometimes it feels like when, um, when you're forced up against the wall and you do something like Disney and Ub did, or it's like, well, let's just walk away actually creates something maybe better down the road. In the case of Mickey Mouse coming around uh, from this uh, fallout that prompted Steamboat Willie, first uh, uh, animated oh, film course. with, with uh, sound, et cetera. Well, it's easy to imagine that if Walt had had a second season of Oswald cartoons, he would have wanted to adapt to sound technology when he saw it coming. It, I think that Walt was such an innovator that that would have come with or, with or without Mickey. Mm-hmm. I mean, even without, even, even, how can I describe this? Mintz himself saw fit to add sound to the second season of Oswald partway through, a few months after Steamboat Willie, even though Mintz was such a money man and so budget focused, there was, he did feel that it was a decent thing to do to add some sound. So essentially, it's easy to imagine that even if Walt had stayed with Oswald, he would have continued to make innovation. After all, that's the reason that he left Oswald, because mm-hmm. it was too hard for him to innovate. You know, I did not really know much about Oswald the Rabbit until about oh, 25, 30 years ago, uh, when I came across little bits and pieces in some old Disney uh, catalogs, magazines, whatnot. Did Oswald have a life after, you know, a long life after uh, it went over to Universal and, and Mintz and, and, uh, and Mickey Mouse became so much more popular? Actually, yes. Oswald remained popular for a number of years. The first season without Walt was produced by Mintz together with a team fronted by Hugh Harmon, Rudy Eisen, Ben Clopton, and Walter Lance. Um, Lance was brought on partway through the second season. Then, very interestingly, Lance did something not unlike Mintz. Lance went to Universal and said, you know, I could be producing these Oswald cartoons cheaper if you open an animation lot on the site. And it didn't use Mintz anymore, but instead simply had me work with uh, Mintz's animators. So essentially, Lance did something very, very similar to what Mintz had done before. He created a situation where, well, he took advantage of Universal's cheapness to get himself more control over the character. And in this case, Mintz was removed just as Walt had been. Interesting. And Walter Lance is, I mean, Walter Lance is the same Walter Lance of Woody Woodpecker, correct? That's right. This was the origin of that studio. Interesting. Walter Lance, yeah, Walter Lance essentially maneuvered Mintz out of the equation and took over the character of Oswald starting with the third season in late 1929. So if you look at the Oswald cartoons that were produced by the Mintz studio, you will see Lance rising as one of the directors. Then essentially he went over Mintz's head and outmaneuvered the character, getting it away from get, getting it away from Mintz. Some of Mintz, and just as some of Disney's staff moved over to work with Mintz, some of Mintz's staff moved over to work with Lance. But Lance also brought along one of the great 20s and 30s animators, Bill Nolan, who had this outrageous sort of wild style of exaggerated anything for a laugh animation. And Lance also hired a new animator in late 1929 or or early 1930, Tex Avery, who made his entrance into animation at this time. So for several years, the Lance Oswald cartoons, while 
produced with lower budgets than anything before were nevertheless very funny cartoons and continued to appeal to an audience. Then something interesting happened in the mid-1930s, which is that Lance, continuing to produce Oswald at full steam, felt that there was a trend sort of brought on by Disney's silly symphonies of sweet and charming fairy tale cartoons. Lance decided that what Oswald needed was to be redesigned to fit the sweet, charming fairy tale mold, mm. which is interesting that Mickey had not been redesigned this way. Right. Nevertheless, Oswald was redesigned by Lance animator Manny Marino as a fluffy, cuddly white rabbit, looking very, very little like the Disney character that had come before. And then this same fluffy white rabbit was put into wild situations similar to where the Disney Oswald and the earlier Lance Oswald had been, but it wasn't a very good fit. This sort of cuddly, sweet-looking character just looked less interesting than the wild situations that Oswald had been in before. And so essentially the redesigned Oswald lost a lot of popularity very fast. I see. And soon the Lance studio was thinking, well, we can't really save Oswald's popularity. By now it was 1938. We need to introduce some new characters. So first... Andy Panda was created, and then Woody Woodpecker was created, and when those two both became popular, the Oswald series slowly, slowly stopped. Finally, I mean, Oswald was reduced to a walk-on character in a couple mm -hmm. of Andy Panda and Woody Woodpecker cartoons, and that was basically the last of him in animation. His last appearance was in 1951 in a supporting role in a Woody Woodpecker cartoon. But animation wasn't the be-all and end-all of... Oswald's life with Walter Lance in the later years. In 1942, the Lance studio made an agreement with Western Publishing and Dell, their comic book imprint, and Andy Panda and Woody Woodpecker and Oswald comic books began. Now, Oswald only occasionally had a book of his own, but for many, many years, Oswald was regularly featured in the Woody Woodpecker and New Funnies comic books. And throughout the 1940s, Oswald's adventures in these comics, while bearing little visual resemblance to the Disney character, were written by John Stanley of Little Lulu fame, one mm. of the great funny cartoonists and writers of that period, mm -hmm. with a wonderful dark sense of humor. Um, Oswald and his pal Toby the Bear, who had first appeared as a bit player in some Disney cartoons years before, were usually singled out as boon companions in these stories, often living together as roommates. And finding their way into crazy trouble and some really wild and imaginative adventures. So essentially, there was this little remarked upon period that I might say that the Oswald comics of the 40s were funnier and much more interesting than most of the later cartoons that Lance had produced with the character. But still, they kind of existed in a vacuum. When Stanley left the series in the late 40s, it took a kind of nosedive and Basically, that was that was the end of great Oswald material, period. He appeared in comics for many decades after that as a sort of second-string universal character. Mm -hmm. But you, you might say that if, his, if, if Oswald's Disney Golden Age lasted one year, then his comics Golden Age lasted about six years under Lance much later. What, what I think is so fascinating is by 2000... Oh, yeah. I was going to say, what I find so fascinating is by 2006... Uh, Bob Iger over at Disney and NBC Universal had made an agreement sharing uh, Al Michaels over to NBC. But in that in that deal that they struck, Oswald came back to Disney. Which I found very fascinating that they would 
uh, want to include that as part of of the um, of that uh, exchange and agreement. Well, Oswald is a wily and mischievous and <laughs> funny, interesting character. It's no surprise that the Disney studio would have wanted him back. It, it's interesting. It's interesting you say wild and mischievous because of the 26 Disney produced films, not all of them have been found. Uh, in 2000, I think what was it was 2011, 2012, the, the new one, the uh, Hungry Hobos was discovered. It was restored by Disney is now a part of this uh, Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs collection. How many other missing Oswald uh, shorts might suddenly pop up and surprise us in the next couple of years, do you think? Well, Disney has recovered a couple more that have been shown. For example, there was this excellent Los Angeles Chamber Orchestra Oswald performance last summer, where essentially there was an evening of Disney cartoons presented with a live orchestra, and there were several newly discovered Oswalds in the group, Poor Papa and Africa Before Dark. The same composer, Mark Waters, who did a wonderful score for Hungry Hobos, composed the score that the orchestra played for these two cartoons and acted as their guest conductor. So Disney is continuing to locate additional Oswald cartoons. Sometimes I've been involved in the background research, and it's an it's an exciting thing. Well, I hope that uh, the complete collection would someday be finally gathered to go together in a DVD release or a digital release so other people can enjoy it. I, we are out of time today. Uh, I want to thank you for taking the time to come and talk with us today, David. It's been fascinating to learn a little bit about Oswald the Lucky Rabbit and uh, his history. And I think this has been great for our listeners as well. It's been a lot of fun. Thanks so much. Thank you. Again, I want to thank everybody who set this up over at Disney so that we could talk uh, about this. Here's the thing. And I don't remember if it was said in the interview clearly enough, but Oswald the Lucky Rabbit, you guys, is still around. In fact, most recently, you can find him in Walt Disney Comics and Stories number 726. It just came out, I believe, in December from IDW Publishing. Wow. Features Oswald on the cover. And guess who's writing a lot of these Walt Disney Comics and Stories? Who? David Gerstein, the person uh-huh. we just interviewed. There so, you go. Yeah, so go check it out. It's really a lot of fun. And um, I did check on iTunes today. If you don't want to buy the Blu-ray copy of Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs, um, the iTunes copy also includes the Oswald the Lucky Rabbit short, so you can find it there. So, Okay, everyone, I think that wraps it up for this installment of the Major Spoilers Podcast. Thank you for downloading. Thank you for sharing this episode with a friend. And if you liked this episode and you want to hear more of them and you want to see this show continue, please consider becoming a Major Spoilers VIP. Consider it a... Uh, just like Patreon, except more of the money comes to the creators and not to a third party. And the more people that we get to sign up at members.majorspoilers.com, you can do two, five, ten dollars a month, but it supports everything we do here at Major Spoilers. Uh, the more that uh, people that sign up, the more things we can do, and I hope that you will uh, be part of that. Next week, we're going to be talking about uh, what are we talking about next week? I think next week. Oh, we're going to be talking about Scarlet Couture. Yeah, from Titan Comics. We're going to be talking about that. Why? Because we know that you love comics. We do, too. And we will talk with you soon. Fat Dick's revision of Superman. I could save a few bucks and stand around and read through the covers of the comics on the stand. But although every other page would be backwards, I suppose, I could still read the evens and the odds. Well, I don't know. Guess I haven't thought this all the way through. Plus, as soon as the comic book store guy knew, he kicked my butt out on the corner. What a major spoiler.
para me exponer. Way. If I was hulking green or gray, I could just bust through that brick wall, take their comic books away. But then the little meat would deal with all the tanks and bombs and guns. Have you ever tried to read a series with all that going on? Guess I need to rethink this plan. How would I back and board my comics with such huge hands? Guess I already told ya. What a major spoiler. What a major spoiler. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What a major spoiler What a major spoiler If I'm Stark Raven Rich like a man of iron I might not be surprised to find That I might actually have the heart cold To follow an entire storyline But would I really even need To read upon all those escapades I mean, who needs such distractions When your sister's such a babe But the downside is such a beast Being shot up in a fun Be in the Middle East With a King Santo and soldier What a major spoiler, what a major spoiler, yeah, 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 what a major spoiler, whoa, 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 whoa. what a major spoiler. This podcast is copyright 2016 by Major Spoilers Entertainment, LLC.